0: we continue our series in the Gospel of Mark, this biography of the life of Jesus, exploring this question of who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? What is he all about? Who is this man? The question that many were asking at the time and are still asking today. There are two characters in the story that we are looking at today who fall at the feet of Jesus as you see in this title falling at the feet of Jesus and these two people in this story were at the point of desperation they're at the point where they would do anything to get an answer from Jesus they would do whatever it takes to see Jesus respond to them in the way that they hope for you know our our world today is actually full of a lot of people who are desperate people. It's been, you know, even a a pretty, uh, like, hard week when we think about celebrities who've um, taken their own lives. And, you know, we get very stirred in some ways, a lot of, in in our culture, when we see these well-known people who take their own lives. And this week we saw uh, Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain, people who are very wealthy, people who seem to have lives that were full of success. People who uh, just seem to be able to like have the dream life. This guy, Anthony Bourdain, traveling the world the like, last 15 years, eating the best food and meeting the most interesting people and all of this. And yet, still, um, this is where he ends up. And there's all sorts of different reasons why, and, and it's very, very hard. But we think about, um, I also want us to think about the fact that that every week in America, it's something like 850 to 900 people who aren't celebrities take their own lives. And that we live in a world where it's just growing more and more desperate and lost and hopeless. And there's illness involved and there's all sorts of um, you know, factors when it comes to this. But you think of these people, though, that have everything, right? just seemingly have everything and yet don't have meaning. And... To me, just I I had a glimpse of kind of Ecclesiastes, of uh, of Solomon's writings, of just you know, it's I've, I've had it all, eat, drink, and be merry. Yet it was meaningless, and we come to these points of desperation, and and we even see in one of our characters in this story today that she tried everything else before she finally turned to Jesus, and how often it is for us that we try everything else. So let's let's look into this story to see. What is, what is going on, and how do these people get from this point of desperation to the feet of Jesus? So turn, please with me, to Mark 5, if you haven't already. You can grab your bulletin notes and the outline there, Mark 5, verse 21. And we're going to read through this story. If you've got the Bible on the back of the seat there, it's page 30, the second page 30, and the second half of the Bible there. Um, and uh, let's check this story out. It says, verse 21. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him. And so he stayed by the seashore. If you remember last week, Matt uh, Davis preached and he was talking about how Jesus and the disciples and, had gone from the Jewish side of the lake down to the Gentile side of the lake. And there was that whole story with The man who was possessed by the demons, legion of demons, and they were cast into the pigs. And that story took place here in the Gentile side of the lake. And that Roman cities are over here. And then now what's happening is they're going back. Okay, so Jesus and the disciples are going from here back over to the Jewish side of the lake. And when they get there, a big crowd comes around him. And it says, verse 22, One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up And on seeing him, fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he, Jesus, went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. Then it says, verse 25, A woman who had had a hemorrhage for twelve years. Essentially, we believe this woman was having her menstrual period for 12 years. And she had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I'll get well. Immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Now, this is one of those moments, kind of like with Adam and Eve in the garden, when, when God says, Adam, where are you? After they'd sinned. We know that God wasn't confused about where they were, that this was a question less about location, but a question about what's going on in the heart or to draw out this person in some way. Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, "...came and fell down before him, and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace, and be healed of your affliction." Now, while he, Jesus, was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official, saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore?" But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him, except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion, and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child's not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him, but putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions, entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which is in Aramaic, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given her to eat. All right. So, this amazing story, right? Incredible story of of two people desperate for Jesus to do something for them. And I want us to consider where are we right now? What is our point of desperation? What's a moment maybe we feel this now or we've felt this at some point in our life? With stress, with anxiety, with maybe it's in our marriage or with our children. Maybe it's with our job. Maybe it's in our hope for a relationship that we don't have. Maybe it's with our, uh, our health and sickness. Maybe our retirement hasn't been everything we hoped it would be. Maybe it's a lack of meaning in our lives or fear, or suffering, or something going on in our lives that has brought us to this point of desperation. And the question is, is within that point, what will we do? Will we fall at the feet of Jesus? Or will we just keep trying to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and, and fix ourselves and make this happen for ourselves? Or do we just give up completely? What's your point of desperation? I want you to place yourself in your mind and in your heart in this story as this woman or this father that come to Jesus with this desperation. And what I want you to know is that wherever you're coming from, Jesus cares for you. What I love in this story is that Jesus cares equally for the outcast and the important. Okay, there are two very, very different characters in this story. One is this synagogue official named Jairus. He is the important, okay? He is one of probably a, a few key elders in this village. Someone who's in charge of caring for the synagogue itself and maybe like part of leading in the services. Okay, this person is um, just one of the leaders of their community. And he's a religious leader. And he's not a, a Pharisee necessarily, but we always think about how the Pharisees opposed Jesus, right? We have this thing of where the Pharisees had this fear of their power being taken from them, that they didn't like how he was sort of disrupting the status quo of what life was supposed to be like for them. And I, I either think that, well, there, there's a couple things to think about with this. Either Maybe the, the religious leadership world was a little more divided than, than we realized, And some really like, believed in who Jesus was and what he was doing. Or at least were curious. And some were against him, were prideful and about their own power. Or this guy could be someone that was, maybe didn't like what Jesus was doing. But when your daughter's dying, you stop caring about the status quo. You stop caring about church politics. You stop caring about this is the way we've always done it. And you just need help. You just want to see Jesus do something miraculous. And you're willing to, to fall on your face as a leader in this community before this rabbi, this teacher that you've heard has done some amazing things because you love your little girl. And you just want her to be saved. He was desperate. And Jesus cared for this man. That was important and maybe even disagreed with, with him in a lot of ways. And Jesus cared for him. It's, um, you know, this little girl, she was 12 years old, it says. She was this just beloved daughter. This daughter was just loved by her father. And at the point, though, once she dies, her body actually makes her become sort of ceremonial, ceremonially unclean. She becomes unclean now that she is this dead body and what we have over here in this other character in our story is this woman this outcast who has been unclean for the last 12 years of her life she's been unclean because of this affliction that she has has made her both unclean in a religious sense and then because of that in a social sense so this woman is an outcast in in the most important ways that that Them and their society, but just we as people, you know, what we experience and what we need, she doesn't have any of that. She doesn't belong. She's considered a freak. She's on the fringes of society, but Jesus cares for her. What I love is that what Jesus calls her when he heals her, because she has been this outcast, and then Jesus says, Daughter, daughter. It's this beautiful moment where he says, Come back in, right? You are, you are welcomed in as family. You are our family. I'm, I'm going to give you both what you need and what you want, right? I'm healing you, but I'm also welcoming you back in to this community, from this thing that she'd suffered from for so long. And what I love is that both the important and the outcast, their response to Jesus is to fall at their knees in front of him. They come to that point of desperation, so they fall at their knees in front of him. They have this this. Faith in Jesus that's so hard for us to kind of put our finger of what does that really look like? What does that feel like? What do I do to have that? Like, what am I supposed to, like, actually do in this moment? But for them, I think it was just complete and total surrender. They didn't care about their pride or how they looked. They fell at the feet of Jesus. The man, Jairus, to implore him, and then the woman just to reach out to try to touch him. I love this picture where you have this just picture of all these feet and this woman on the ground just trying to reach for the fringe of Jesus' garment. To reach for that one part where she could just experience this healing. We'll talk a little bit more about what that healing um, looks like and how it came. And it's, it's very interesting, but when we think about this question of who is Jesus, we know... And we see here in this passage that Jesus is the one with power over disease and power over death. Jesus has power over death itself. It's the first time in this Gospel of Mark that we see anything like this. That Jesus could bring someone back to life. And within that story though, within that power that Jesus has, he also is saying to them, I want you to have faith. And I want you to believe. And it starts to get then for us, okay, so what again, though, does this mean? How do I do this? What does this mean I'll always be healed if I do that? Uh, how does this all work? So I want to look a little bit more into some of the story of the woman and then a little bit into the story of this little girl. Now, first of all, this woman, this woman, has, as we've said, she's this outcast. But she's also, it said that she'd tried everything else, right? She'd been trying all, with all these doctors, and it says that uh, she'd spent all that she had, but she didn't get better, she actually got worse. Now, I mean, luckily for us, we live in 2018, and, you know, the medical field has dramatically improved in the last couple thousand years. And But this woman was out there just desperate to try and, get this this affliction to have this sickness solved how do i fix how do i cure how do i get rid of this so i can come back into society but also just be healthy and there were probably more like the jewish doctors probably weren't quite as advanced on the jewish side of the lake as they were over maybe on the gentile or the roman side of the lake they were a little more advanced in their medical practices you can even see a picture here of um these are some Medical instruments, which is always a little terrifying to look at, but medical instruments from the first century, and these were um, these are basically what you would be worked on if you went as this woman would have went, maybe over to the Roman side of the lake, since she tried everything and went to the temple of Asclepius, the god of healing, and she has to go to that place and offer a sacrifice to this god Asclepius. And uh, then go and then have these doctors there work on her. uh, But nothing is happening. So we think that probably this woman was even willing to go and make sacrifices to these false gods. Just like, she didn't care. She was willing to do anything until she finally hears about Jesus. And that's when then she comes to him. But after trying everything else, and it just kind of makes me think about how often... Do we try everything else before we turn to Jesus? There's no, there's zero part of me saying we shouldn't go to the doctor or something like that. Okay, that's, don't even come close to thinking that's what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is it seems like at times with all sorts of issues in our lives, we'll try to fix it. When we can't, then we'll go to Jesus. But how about we go to Jesus first? How about we go to Jesus in conjunction with all these other things that we would try to do with with wisdom and discernment? But we got to go to Jesus because Jesus is the real God of healing, not these false gods or anyone else. Um, interestingly. What was going on... Okay, this is Mark 3.10 you see on the screen. Okay, the story we're in is in Mark 5. So a couple chapters earlier, in Mark 3.10, it says... For he'd healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. All right, so there's some sort of precedent that if you can get to Jesus and touch him, you will be healed. So maybe she's heard about this. In the next chapter, in Mark 6... It talks about how this very thing happened. Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were being cured. All right, so we can see that this is happening more than once. This is happening a lot, that if you could touch the fringe of his cloak, you would be healed. Now, Matthew 9 is this same story we're looking at in Mark. It's just Matthew's account of it. Because in our story in Mark, it just says the woman touched his, his cloak or his garment. It doesn't say anything about the fringe of it. But in Matthew 9, it says, A woman who'd been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched The fringe of his cloak. Now, so what's this whole thing with the fringe of his cloak? Here's some Orthodox Jewish people of today, and you could see their prayer shawls, and you could see the things hanging down from them, and you might be able to see the things dangling there a little bit better. Those are the fringe. Now, I was able to borrow Matt Davis's bar mitzvah uh, talit, his prayer shawl. Um, I still haven't bought one myself, but I'm going to have to on this next Israel trip. But um, what you have is this beautiful uh, prayer shawl. This is what has the fringe of his cloak. This is, so this prayer shawl, it's called a talit, and these fringes are called um, the tzitzit, or the wings. They're also called. In Hebrew, it's the kanaf. It has a, a prayer that you would say before you put it on. It's and so before you put it on, you say, Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Asher kidishanu, uh Vitzivanu. this one's harder for me, La hatef, sit okay? sit at the end. So it's this blessing for the fringe, for the tzitzits. That's what these are. Now, then you take it, and you put it on, and I don't totally always put it on right, because it's supposed to sort of hang in back and front, which I just don't even understand. But um, and so you wear it, and when you wear it, you you pray with this on. Now, Jesus would be wearing it. Now, you can even see people that will wear these as a shirt, and the things that's under their shirt, if you see with some Orthodox Jews. And you can see the fringe dangling out from underneath. Now, so Jesus, as this rabbi, as this good Jewish person, has this on. And this woman is coming up, and what she's touching are these the fringe of his garment. Okay? These things are the wings. Now, what's what's interesting as well, what's amazing about this, and is another one of these prophecies about Jesus as Messiah. Malachi 4, 2 says this. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. This expression, son of righteousness, that is expression that was known by both Jewish and then later Christian scholars to be a messianic prophecy. A prophecy about the Messiah, the Savior, the Deliverer to come. Son, S-U-N, yes. Son of Righteousness. And that Son of righteous, Righteousness, that Messiah will rise with healing in its wings. That these corners are called wings as well, the kanaf. And so then... People, including this woman, come and just touch the fringe of his garment, and they are healed. Fulfilling prophecy of Jesus as the one, as the Messiah, the one that has come. And so it's incredible. It's not just this woman being healed, but it's Jesus fulfilling the prophecies of the Messiah to come. I think it's just an amazing kind of moment where all of this is coming together. That physical healing is happening. That this woman is experiencing even more than physical healing, as well as prophecy being fulfilled. What it says is, it says, your faith has made you well. And then he says after that, go and be healed of your affliction. So this, your faith has made you well, is this Greek word sozo, which means to save. It actually is, your faith has saved you. And then right afterwards, he says, you'll be healed of your affliction. So it's interesting that in the same sentence, he says, your faith has saved you, and you'll be healed of your sickness. Because this is the part that actually means healthy from disease. Okay, that Greek word, it's in your notes, you can look more at it. I don't want to spend too much time on it. But what I want you to see is that in that same sentence he's saying, you're saved and you're healed. It's interesting. So what's going on with that? I think that there's something more. Now this word, sozo, that you're saved, it really, it is used both as physical healing at times and as spiritual salvation or restoration at times in the scriptures as well. But when it's so closely side by side, he's saying both, right? That you're, that you're saved and you're healed, essentially, in the same sentence. It's Something's going on there where Jesus is saying, look, you're not just healed. You're not just healed of this disease. I'm, I'm saving you. I'm bringing you back into the family of God that you have been declared as unclean from. So let's, let's keep going, though. Let's keep kind of peeling the layers off of all this. Because then we have this little girl. This little girl, this 12-year-old girl, who <laughs> incredibly dies and is brought back to life by Jesus. Okay, as much as we sort of think, yeah, yeah, like, we know, we're Christians. Like, we get it. Jesus brings people back to life. You got to know we only really know about three stories of Jesus bringing people back to life. There's a guy in Luke 7, was the first in sort of chronologically, he's not mentioned in the book of Mark. Then you have this girl, then you have Lazarus. I mean, of course, you have Jesus himself coming back to life as well. But really, we only have these stories of these three people that Jesus brings back to life again. So this is amazing, this is radical, and this is the first one that Mark chooses to tell us about that this little girl is brought back to life. And when you think about authority, who Jesus is as the one with authority, he came teaching and proclaiming with an authority that was different than anyone else. He has forgiven sin. He's had power over nature. He's had power over disease. But now he walks into a room and says to a little dead girl, rise up, and he grabs her hand. And she comes back to life again. But then he says, shh, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. This is too much, right? People are going to freak out. So we got to, like, keep this, keep this on the DL for a while, okay? Let's just keep this calm. Let's not tell anybody else about this. But Jesus has authority over death itself. And what I love is that he, he also seems to display, I think, an authority over time an authority over um, (laughs) hurry, right? This is one of those times when Jesus is like, he's told, hey, we got to go help this little girl. She is dying. And while along the way, he's interrupted by this woman. And he doesn't say, I'm busy, woman. I got to go do something, right? Deal with your sickness yourself, or I'll get back to you later. He meets this woman in the middle of this time and has this moment with her. And because he took that time, then he finds out the little girl is dead. But you don't see Jesus' stress, right? Because Jesus has power over life and death itself. He knows. It's the same thing that happened with, with Lazarus. That they come tell him Lazarus is dying. And it says he spent a few more days before he bothered to even go to the town that Lazarus was in. And then he finally goes and they're, they're all mourning because he's dead. And Jesus cries not for, I think, Lazarus, but for his friends who are sad. But then he goes and brings Lazarus back to life again. That Jesus isn't affected by all of that because he knows the power that he possesses. And he's willing to like, take time to notice both the outcast and the important. So there's this question for us. Will I be healed if I just have faith and belief? He tells the woman to have faith he tells Jairus, the dad, just believe, right? And, and uh, it's in the middle of this moment where we have to recognize, first of all, that yes, it was Jesus' power that rescued the woman, right? It was Jesus'—clearly Jesus' power that saved her, that healed her. But he says, your faith has saved you. It's an interesting line, right? That Jesus would say that. Your faith— has saved you. And so some have thought, and I'm trying to, even as I try to process that, that the answer is that, okay, faith by itself, just having faith itself is powerless. But faith is somehow this this sort of channel that the power of Christ can work through. That he asks us to have faith. That he then works through that. He works through that faith in that moment to heal us. He can choose to heal whenever he wants to. God's power is not limited by our faith. But, but there is this, this moment where he says, like, I want you to have faith to join in with me in this. And then he says to the man this whole thing of belief. He says, don't be afraid, just believe. Don't be afraid, just believe. Now this word belief— in the Bible, for us to get a a greater sense of it, it really is more of, I think, to help us understand it fully, to trust in, to put one's faith in, to trust with an implication that actions based on that trust may follow. Okay, this first century understanding of belief is that we believe and actions follow. They were never separated. Belief was never just a a mental assent, okay? Belief wasn't just, yes, I believe that this is true in my mind. Belief meant, in this biblical sense, that we believe this, yes, in our minds, but that faithful actions follow that belief, okay, or that assent, You understand? Are you are you with me on this? I want us to understand that when we believe, it's not just that we believe in our minds and now we sit and we're good. Like, okay, I got it because I I I intellectually understand what you're saying. That actions follow. That this word that Jesus says to this man, "Don't be afraid, just believe." It's the same belief in John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's the same word for belief in Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That there's this belief, it's a belief in our heart, and it's a belief with our life, that we live out this belief. And so Jesus is saying to him, don't be afraid, Place your trust in me. So, so think it, yes, but fully surrender yourself to me in this. Right? That's what he's calling him to do. And the man does. And look, faithful people aren't healed every time they ask for it. Or we'd, maybe, we'd have a, maybe we'd have more than three stories to talk about from the scriptures, even when Jesus was in the flesh on the earth in that moment. But I think that there's something that people that never ask are maybe rarely healed, right? Faithful people aren't, aren't healed every time they ask. But if we don't ever ask, can there be faith in that, right? And, and there's this thing of why did Jesus only save these three people? And I, I just think there's this, this amazing quote that I want to read parts of it to you. It says this, because this, this question... I think for us is a question of fairness right we think it's unfair why did that person get healed and why do i not get healed or the person i love or god in this situation in my desperate moment god i feel like you weren't there for me and we feel like it's not fair but just as jesus wasn't coming to be a one-man liberation movement in the traditional revolutionary sense So he wasn't just coming to liberate the people of Israel from their Roman occupiers. So he also wasn't coming to be a one-man emergency medical clinic. He was indeed starting a revolution. And he was indeed bringing God's healing power. But his aim went deeper. These things were signs of the real revolution. The real healing that God was going to accomplish through his death. ...and his resurrection. And only if we see Jesus' movements in all its dimensions... ...will we understand that behind the intense and intimate human dramas of each of these stories... ...there lies a larger, darker even theme to which Mark is repeatedly drawing our attention. Jesus is on his way to confronting evil at its very heart. He will meet death itself which threatens God's whole beautiful creation. And he will defeat it in a way as unexpected as these two healings in this story. And on that day, there will be no command to silence. That Jesus has come, yes, to give us healing. We want that healing so bad. And he has healed some. But that healing is a glimpse into the real true work that he's doing to defeat Death and sin itself. And so when we come to Jesus in our most desperate moments, I want us to remember that He has come and He's come to heal us. But maybe He doesn't heal us of the, the thing that is getting us down in our physical bodies today. He's come to heal us of the curse of sin and death. To spend an eternity with Him. Forever in that new heaven and new earth. An eternity walking in hand in hand, step by step, with God himself. That we will spend all of time with him. Glorified bodies. We will now be all with him in every sense of our beings. And it's just, that is the ultimate healing that he's leading us towards. So I want to encourage us today that we come as desperate people. The posture of both Jairus and this woman... even in Him, to bring our, our hurts, our ailments, our suffering, to bring all of our struggles in life and just come on our knees to the feet of Jesus and reach out our hands for the fringe of His garment and find that real, true healing in Him. And so in this next moment, I'm going to pray and we're going to have a time to, to worship. I want to encourage you just to get up and come and kneel at the front. Come and kneel at the steps. There'll be people that you can pray with at the prayer points. There'll, there'll be communion available at the different tables around the room. You can spend some time on your knees examining yourself before you come to the table to take communion. But let's come. Let's, let's be like that woman that was willing to take that step of faith towards him and just give him all of what's in our hearts. Let's give Him all of ourselves and reach out to Him, falling at the feet of Jesus in worship. Let's pray together. Almighty God, Lord Jesus, thank You so much for stories like this. Stories that show us, Lord, that You are here for us, whether we are important people in this society or we are the outcasts of our society. God, I pray that the hurt, the stuff in our our lives that we would bring to you today, that we would surrender ourselves fully with all of the disappointment and hurts in our lives, Lord, that you would restore us and you would help us look towards our ultimate restoration in you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we sing and as we approach, please come forward with a new song. I want you just to listen, kind of meditate as we soak in these words, that we give it all to Jesus.